We can start with Sunday school here. I'm going to be up here because the lapel mic battery is dead. So um, I have to have some kind of mic. So I feel like very formal up here for Sunday school. But um, this morning we'll be looking uh, at uh, 1 Timothy and going through a passage there. So if you want to turn to 1 Timothy, we're going to be in chapter 6. Uh, but I'm going to kind of do a little overview of, of some earlier parts of the book leading up to that. Um, so before we get into that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity with which it speaks to us. Thank you for your love that's communicated to us through your word. And pray your spirit would be with us now as we open your word. Enlighten our minds that we understand what the truths of your word and write them on our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, looking at 1 Timothy, uh, first we're just going to look at the first few verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, reads as follows. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We'll stop there. So the first thing that Paul mentions there when he's writing to Timothy is these false teachers that are in Ephesus. He's instructing Timothy to charge these persons not to teach false doctrine or devote themselves to these myths. The aim of the charge that he's to give is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So these false teachers are a threat to the church, and Paul, out of love for the church, is instructing Timothy to oppose these teachers in order to protect the church from their influence and from their teaching. And that's how the book begins. Then as we get in, move through it, in chapter 3, we find that the purpose of Paul writing this book to Timothy, or this letter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, gives us the purpose. Uh, it says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So it's clear the purpose of the letter is to instruct Timothy on how one ought to uh, behave in the church of God. The emphasis is on the proper behavior of believers in the church. And it again mentions the church is the protector of the truth of the gospel, the truth that is threatened by these false teachers that were mentioned earlier. In chapter 4, there's a little more mentioning of these false teachers. 
and just a couple of verses to, to look at here as we're working our way to chapter 6. We're almost there. Um, chapter, or verse 7 from chapter 4. Uh, Paul writes, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Timothy's encouraged to live a life of godliness, avoiding these silly myths from these false teachers uh, and, and pressing forward. And then down in verse 12 of this same chapter, he's told, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So Timothy, having received this instruction from Paul, a clear instruction to refute the false teachers, He's instructed to set an example of godliness for the church. And then we come through chapter 5 into chapter 6. And we're going to spend most of our time then in chapter 6 this morning. Uh, I'm going to read a section here from chapter 6, and then we'll dive into a little more detail. So starting in verse 3 of chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So here in chapter 6, Paul returns to this theme of these false teachers. He describes their teaching and the disastrous effects of that teaching on those who hear it. And then he makes a statement at the end of verse 5 that these teachers are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So contrasting these two things, as I was thinking about them, it kind of sounds like Paul is saying, now these false teachers, they thought that godliness was a means of gain, but actually what they were missing was contentment, because really it's godliness with contentment that's gain. Just godliness isn't gain. And these false teachers were godly, but they weren't content, so therefore there was no gain for them. But I don't think that's what's being t taught here. Um, I don't think the emphasis here is that these false teachers were godly. They just simply weren't content. I think if we look in more detail, it'll be pretty clear that they weren't godly even to begin with. Um, we'll see that their godliness is not really godliness, and their gain is not really gain. You can see in verse 4, these false teachers were described as being puffed up with conceit 
understanding nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for all these quarrels. And the, the outcome of their teaching makes people envious of others and their possessions, it causes dissension, contention with others, there's slander, misrepresentation of what others are saying, evil suspicions, which is a distrust of other people, constant friction, stirring up discord among the people, being depraved in mind, being deprived of truth. This hardly describes people who are godly. So if these false teachers were thinking that their godliness was going to produce gain, their godliness wasn't godliness in any sense of the word. Rather, I think these teachers thought of themselves as godly simply because of the position they had in the church. They were teachers. They had some kind of elevated position. So we'll see if we can make some gain out of this. Trying to manipulate and use the people to their own advantage, using their position of leadership as a guise for spirituality and godliness. Their motivation being gain, financial gain, material gain. And this kind of motivation leads to all kinds of evil. As we read earlier uh, in chapter six, Paul goes on to talk about the dangers of seeking this financial gain, that being your sole uh, desire, your sole motivation. Uh, verses nine and 10 in chapter six there, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So this gain, financial gain that they're seeking, isn't really gain. It's actually a loss. It leads to ruin and destruction, if that's their whole motivation. So there's two problems with their godliness reaching gain. Their godliness isn't real godliness, and their gain isn't real gain. There's, there's nothing being gained by these false, false teachers. There's some kind of pseudo-godliness motivated by greed for financial and material gain, and it's not behavior that is to be tolerated in the Church of God. Again, remember Paul's purpose that we read earlier in writing this letter to Timothy. I'm writing these things that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And this is not how one ought to behave in the household of God. We do see many examples of this, I think, today. Um, you see cults today, where they have their teaching, where they seek to separate people from their families. They emphasize certain things within scripture or certain hobby horse things that they will hold up as being uh, paramount, require their people to adhere to those things, separate them from their families, try to talk them into giving them all of their money. And the whole motivation of these people who start these cults is money and power. Um, so it's not something that was um, just in that day. It's something we see today. We see a similar outcome with a little different twist to it, I think, in the prosperity gospel today. Um, you have Pastors who are saying, you know, if you follow God, God is going to bless you financially with more than you can possibly imagine. So if you can give me every cent that you have, 
in the end, God is going to bless you even more. Um, so uh, again, the, the motivation, I think, behind these prosperity gospel teachers is money. They're wanting the money from the people that they are uh, teaching and trying to portray that they, this will lead these other people into wealth, into some kind of financial gain. Uh, and uh, that financial gain, actually, if that's your whole purpose, is seeking money, going after money, as we read earlier, that leads to all kinds of evils uh, and causes people to even wander away. So that's the false teachers. A um, couple things to, to just mention as asides, because when we talk about these things, I think people always, there's, there are balances here, right? So um, these false teachers, one result of their teaching was discord among people. And that can happen when we're preaching the gospel. When we preach the gospel, there can be discord among people, because the gospel is uh, an offense to those who don't believe. But that's obviously not what's being addressed here. The discord that's being uh, shown here among these false teachers is discord that's because of the selfishness, the enviousness that's there among the people. Um, second, I think it's important to realize that having money in itself is not evil. It's not evil to be a wealthy person. Um, even here in 1 Timothy 6, if you look later on in the chapter, verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 6, says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul doesn't condemn the wealthy people. He doesn't tell them they need to get rid of their wealth and live in poverty. He simply tells them to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. So we're not saying that it's evil to be wealthy. And we're not saying even that it's evil to seek money. We need money to provide for our substance. Even here in 1 Timothy, again, we see back in chapter 5, uh, verse 8, 1 Timothy 5, 8, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it's expected that we're going to need to get some money to provide for our needs. The danger is when money becomes our sole focus, and that's what we crave. That's everything that we do is to gain money, to gain money. The warning here is to heed verse 10. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's what these false teachers are doing, is pursuing wealth for wealth's sake. And that's not where we should be. Um, I do think we as Americans in our affluent society, it can be easy to justify an overemphasis on gaining wealth because we see it all around us. And we say, well, I'm, I'm being a good steward and I'm just trying to get as much that I can steward as I can. Um, and uh, I think we just need to, to be honest about that, to have the Lord search our hearts and, and make sure that our motives are correct, that we're being wise to meet our financial needs. 
but not to be so focused on money that everything else takes second place. So those are the false teachers, verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, focusing on financial gain as a way to, to move forward. And that's contrasted then to verse 6, where Paul contrasts the pseudo-godliness leading to temporal gain with the statement, godliness with contentment is great gain. So what is this godliness? How is this different from the verse before? I think Paul here is talking about true godliness, one who is pursuing true godliness with contentment is going to experience true gain. So what is true godliness? Um, this godliness it is a word that means piety, means devotion to God, living in devotion to him. It's a life where our actions and the actions of the person spring directly from their faith and their belief in God. Um, you've probably heard the saying, your walk talks and your talk talks but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. So what is your walk saying? Um, people can understand and judge what you believe by what you do. So what are you doing? And are the things that you're doing representative of someone who believes in God or not? What is your walk talking about? A life of godliness is a life that is lived in accordance with the will and character of God, and this kind of life can only be found in those who follow Christ. This kind of life can only be lived through the power of God. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we have an instruction from, from Peter. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the godliness that we have is granted to us by his power. It's only through the power of God and living a life empowered by God that we can have godliness. True godliness is a direct result of his power in our lives, causing us to put to death the desires of the flesh and to live in holiness toward God. And this godliness takes effort on our part. It's not something that just happens. It's not a passive thing. But we must pursue godliness. Um, here in 1 Timothy, back in chapter 4, we read this earlier as we were going through, uh, through the book, four, chap chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. So the instruction is train yourself. It's something that you, you must uh, purpose to do, to be godly. It doesn't just happen. Uh, and... Timothy was again told in verse 12 of chapter 4, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So Timothy is to be setting an example. He is purposefully walking in accordance with the ways of God, displaying his devotion and faith in God and in obedience to his will. So godliness is something we pursue, and it's something that's empowered by God himself. It's not just external actions, but actions that are the natural result of devotion to God and to his word. This is godliness, and this is true godliness, not based on position or status, but flowing freely from a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who love him and walk with him 
will walk in godliness before him. And this kind of godliness with contentment brings great gain. So let's look at the contentment part. So it's godliness with contentment. Um, The result of the false teachers definitely was not contentment. There was envy and strife. Anything but contentment could be said was the result of what they were teaching. But someone who is truly godly is content. It's contentment is being satisfied with what one has, being satisfied with what God has done in your life. It also means being, uh, understanding the sufficiency of what God has done. This exact same word contentment is used in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. Uh, just a second. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And here the context is in giving, instruction around giving in the church. Uh, And it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And this word that's translated there, sufficiency, is the same word that's translated as contentment in 1 Timothy 6. The sufficiency that we have in the grace of God. God makes his grace abound in us, and that gives us all sufficiency in all things. All sufficiency that allows us, therefore, to be content because God has supplied everything that we need. Everything that we need is we are sufficiently supplied in the grace of God. It's sufficient to meet our needs. And this sufficiency gives power and grace to move forward uh, in the light of what God has told us. So contentment is also realizing that the riches of this world are temporary. They're fleeting. Here in 1 Timothy 6, uh, right after verse 6, come verse 7 and 8, where it says, For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So why work hard for material gain when in the end, we can't take anything with us? It teaches us to be content because there's nothing that we have in this life materially that we're going to take with us. We can be content with the things that God has given us. And finally, our contentment is rooted in two promises that God has given us. There are two promises, many promises, but two that I'm talking about here that talk about contentment and how we can be content with what God has done. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, we read, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So this promise from God, I will never leave you or forsake you, is a source of great contentment for us. We know that God is going to care for us for anything that we need. So we can be content in what he's doing. And then Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, is our second promise. It says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
So this promise, I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me, is given in the context of being content and understanding that God is providing for our every need. And Paul has said, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am in, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think it's remarkable that these two often quoted promises, one, I will never leave you or forsake you. The second one, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We use them in all kinds of contexts, but really they're dealing with contentment. Am I content in what God has done? Am I content to follow him? Am I content to see his purposes in everything that happens to me? This contentment isn't rooted in fatalism. It's not some kind of resigned acceptance to what fate has for me. It's not stoicism trying to suppress my emotions, saying it doesn't matter what happens. Instead, it's active reliance on the sustaining power of Christ to guide and direct our lives as our good shepherd. This is true contentment. So true godliness with contentment Understanding that God is our shepherd and he is leading us skillfully leads to great gain. Not just gain, but great gain. So what kind of great gain can we expect from godliness with contentment? Well, if we're walking in godliness, cultivating a life with God, spending time in his word and in prayer, relying on his spirit for wisdom and for comfort, then we will have freedom, freedom from envy, strife, and contention in this life. That will be a gain that we have now, freedom from that. As we walk in the Spirit, we'll experience the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are gain to us if we walk in godliness with contentment. Another gain we have is assurance of eternal life. Again, here in 1 Peter chapter 4, back in verse 7, where he had, Paul had told Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but train yourself for godliness. He goes on to say, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So our godliness, our contentment in what God is doing, confirms our calling, confirms the fact that we belong to him and that we will be spending the rest of our lives with him and beyond. This is also talked about in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to turn there for a minute. Because Peter goes into great detail on this as well. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, which we've been talking about, godliness, contentment, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So these qualities are not possible unless you've been born again. And as we work to cultivate these qualities, we're showing that we belong to God. The end of verse 10 says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Why would that be? It's because we're secure in Christ. And if we are in him, we are provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. Now, our godliness does not merit eternal life. Instead, it's evidence that we belong to Christ. And if we belong to him, then the merit of Christ will ensure our entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. So Christ is the one who ensures our entrance into heaven. But if Christ is alive in us, we will be those who are godly. And in James, we see similar teaching, that true faith produces godliness in the life of a believer. So again, just to be clear, our works are not gaining us favor with God. They're simply showing that we love and, are, and have already obtained favor with him through the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us. We now live with a desire to glorify him in all that we say and all that we do. This is a great gain that we can expect as we train ourselves toward godliness like Paul instructed Timothy to do a life that reflects the character of God. So as we go forward this week, we need to remember that godliness with contentment is great gain. I think of Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, laying up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Our goal ought not to be treasure in this life, but treasure in the life to come. And again, from Matthew 6, Verse 19 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we train ourselves to godliness, empowered by his spirit, content that our shepherd is leading us every step of the way, our great gain will be to hear, well done, my faithful servant, when we enter his presence. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We confess to you how often we are not content with your ways. Make us a people who seek in every way to be godly, Teach us to be content with you, shepherding us every step of the way. And give us true gain in this life and in the life to come. For we pray in the name of our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.